Tenakoto Kato, no mai harimai, kome toku ingoan. Hope you guys are all doing really, really well. Um, as a family, we've been well, thank you. Uh, we've really enjoyed connecting in with the church whānau on Sundays through the live streams and the Zooms, the phone calls and so on. So we're just really grateful we've been able to stay connected in that way. It's been great. And at the same same time, though, as great as it has been, we we really do miss connecting with church whānau uh, in person, and we really can't wait to be able to do that again soon. Um, as a family, we've been enjoying lots of extra time together. It's been really nice in that sense. And, you know, we'll be going on bike rides and family adventures and, uh, you know, watching lots of movies together, as I'm sure parents can appreciate. And me personally, with a little bit of extra time on my plate, I've been enjoying a couple of things in particular. Um, funnily enough, I've been really enjoying listening to Beethoven's symphonies. So there I am with my noise-canceling uh, headphones on, with you know the Ninth Symphony blasting in the background. And as I've been doing that, I've also been reading and studying through Paul's letter uh, to the Romans. Now you'll have to forgive me for living under a musical rock for most of my life, but as I'm listening to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, I honestly find it really profound that he composed that more or less completely deaf. And that actually really spoke to me on a number of levels. And so there I am, and I'm, and, I, and I'm listening, and I'm reading, and kind of thinking as well, actually, Romans is kind of like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Not in the sense that it was his final piece that he wrote, but in the sense that it's his grand, enduring masterpiece that's kind of birthed out of a lifelong, passionate pursuit of God. And so that's Romans. It's been uh, it's a really fruitful time to, to work through it. And so out of that, um, I've been putting together a Romans Bible study series, which um, you can access on the King's Church uh, YouTube channel if you like. And so this morning is kind of an extension, an extension of that. Um, today we'll be working through Romans chapter 8, so grab a Bible and follow along. Now, the main theme of Romans 5 through to 8, and especially of chapter 8, is our assurance as believers. You see, as Christians, we live in this unique time. That is, we live after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but before God's final act of putting the world to right and completely liberating his children and all of creation. And so the gospel is good news that, yes, something has happened, but also that something will happen. And we live now in the middle in this kind of tension that what has happened guarantees what will happen, but we don't quite see it all yet um, coming to play. And so what we need now and what God provides by his spirit is assurance. Assurance that we are anchored firmly in God's love and that he will complete the good work that he has begun. This is the, the, all this story is, is for a good purpose and is going somewhere. So Romans chapter 8. Now Romans 8 is kind of like a Beethoven symphony. It has intense, dramatic, crashing chords that are profound and incredible. These bold statements that speak of our assurance in God. So in fact, you can almost imagine Paul sort of pacing the room as this conductor and sometimes wildly, you know, waving his arms and passionately talking about what God has done and other times, you know, slowing down and working through the detail. But all in all, he does it thoughtfully and in a structured way, building towards these great truths. 
like in verse 28. We know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So my first question is, how do we arrive at so great an assurance? How does this become a reality for us? Well, let's scrub back on Paul's symphony to the beginning of chapter 8 and work through some key passages that lead up to these great statements. So I'd invite you to grab your Bible, turn to Romans 8 and follow along this chapter with me and just allow these truths just to really sink in deep as we read them. So let's go. Verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this phrase, no condemnation, in the flow of Romans is referring to passages like Romans chapter 2, where Paul speaks of a great day of coming judgment, where God will enact his justice against all injustice and sin. Now, that will be a wonderful day for some and actually a terrifying day for others, because all of mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, are standing in the dock and are guilty as charged. But now, God has made a way through Jesus' death and resurrection to be declared in the right, to be at peace with God. And the amazing thing is to be declared that now in advance of that great coming day of judgment. You see, outside of Christ, we stand condemned, and rightly so. But in Christ, we are declared righteous, and that as a gift. So the first statement, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, how did that take place? Well, let's look at verses 3 and 4. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. So actually, in a way, there is condemnation, but not of us, but of sin in the body of Jesus. Now, of course, this is referring to my sin and to your sin as as individuals, but sin here is referring to more than just the, you know, the sum total of all the bad and dumb stuff that we've done as people. It also is referring to the corrupting, polluting, staining evil in God's good creation that results in broken humanity and death and decay. It is the snake in the garden. And intuitively, we know that as a result of sin, that all of creation is out of joint. I mean, just have a look around. But the good news is this, that he defeated and condemned sin in his broken body on the cross and through his spilt blood and by his resurrection from the dead. This is a wonderful truth. It has all sorts of implications. And so in verses 4 through to 11, Paul begins to introduce this entirely new way to be human as a result of this great act, a more genuine way to be human. And that is not to live in rebellion against our Creator, but actually to live in harmony with Him. Not to live according to that corrupted state of sin that he calls the flesh, but actually to walk according to the Spirit, according to God at work in us. Now, to understand this picture more fully, we need to go back to some of the Old Testament promises of God, like in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel there describes a coming great day of delivery for God's people. And he, he explains what is, what is required. He says, actually, what they need is an intense 
heart transplant. So in 36, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Understanding this and other major promises like this are really key to completing our picture of assurance. And that is because it becomes an experienced assurance through a very deep and genuine work of God by His Spirit. It's, it's, it's more than, it's different than just, you know, I know something, therefore I feel assured. It's a deep work. And so verses 14 to 16 go on to explain some of that deep outworkings of the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So part of this experienced truth that God implants by His Spirit is understanding that we are adopted into God's family and we are now dearly loved children and God will treat us as such. You no longer need to be in slavery to your fears, in slavery to your insecurities, in slavery to sin and to death. No, we can now understand that we have a secure position as one declared in the right, at peace with God, a child of God. It's a wonderful place to be. Now, to be sure of that truth, God puts his spirit in us. But not only that we might receive God's love, but also that we might express our love to him. So skipping ahead to verse 28, where, where Paul talks about God working together for, for the good of those who love him. We need to see that even our ability to love him shows that he is already at work in us for good. You see, to be a God lover is a spirit gifted ability. So don't misunderstand verses like verse 28. You see, even loving God is not a prerequisite to him being at work for good in our life. You see, he loved us when we were unlovable. He has been drawing us to him and we love him because he first loved us. It's a wonderful freeing truth. And now we are children. Verse 17 says, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now this, like much of Paul actually, is a loaded phrase and it helps to understand that when Paul uses some of these phrases like inheritance and slavery, um, you know, and freedom and so on, he is He's, he's kind of referencing, actually, the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. And the story of the Exodus runs right through Romans. And a, a really good um, resource is to look up Bible Project and, and look at the story of the Exodus. But in like a three-second recap, just think Moses and the Prince of Egypt film. And you'll probably clip. It'll probably clip for you. But as one, so as one theologian says, now the whole human race has had its exodus. It's rescue from the slavery of sin and death, the indwelling presence of God by the Spirit, the present journey through the wilderness, and the hope of final inheritance. So as Paul unpacks the gospel in Romans and throws out phrases like heirs and inheritance, he actually has in mind uh, the grand biblical story of God redeeming a people for himself through this great exodus, but now on a much grander scale. And this is really key to understanding our assurance in God because it reveals something of God's great 
wide-spanning purposes and helps us to see ourselves as part of that big story. And I personally find that really reassuring. So going back to this word heirs or inheritance, speaking of our inheritance, now, now as Abraham's offspring, as children, that's who we are, the promised land as part of this Exodus story has actually been enlarged to include all of creation but only now a renewed and liberated one. And looking back, actually, this is how the story began in Genesis. God's image bearers were given glory and dominion over God's good creation. This helps us to make sense of verses like Romans 4 verse 13, where Abraham and his offspring received the promise that they would be heir of the whole world. It also helps us to make sense of Paul's train of thought through this chapter in verses 18 to 21, where he says, Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Let's just pause there and ask, ask ourselves, why is creation waiting eagerly for the children of God to be revealed? Well, Paul gives the answer. In hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, I've read to you from the NIV version, which I love and read often, but it is good to use a number of translations. And here in the NASB, it more precisely reflects the Greek in this sentence. So in that translation, it says, creation will be brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the word glory there is connected to uh, this phrase, the children of God, and freedom to creation. In other words, creation itself will be liberated, will be set free as and when the children of God are glorified, which is, as Paul explains, the final step of our salvation. Those he justified, he glorified. This is a wonderful truth. Our inheritance as glorified children is a renewed and freed creation. Now, another aspect of our inheritance that Paul wants us to understand is the truth that we will inherit resurrection life. So verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 6 verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this, in a resurrection like his. So what this is saying is, as Jesus, as our big brother, as the forerunner, so to speak, he died and so were we. But after that, he was raised physically to resurrection life. Now, talking about resurrection here is not an abstract theological metaphor. It is physical, embodied, imperishable, eternal life. And for one, I'm looking forward to that inheritance. Now, like a Beethoven masterpiece in full swing, you think that it's just about to end and it gets bigger and louder yet. Actually, bigger than all of this, bigger than the fact we are to inherit new creation and resurrection life, we inherit all of this in order to inherit a dwelling place with God for all eternity. So Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And the picture there is of a renewed and liberated creation and a glorious city coming down from heaven where God himself will be with them as their God. 
I mean, that is just something of the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us. Now, I think it's really important to take the time to unpack this glory that will be revealed to us. Because as verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. In other words, the bigger picture we have of this glorious inheritance, the more confidence we have to walk through life with complete assurance despite all of its challenges. And the fact is, we will walk through challenges. It's not to negate that. I mean, look at the state of the world now. Look at the condition of of mankind around us. I mean, we'd be the first to admit there are some ways to go here, isn't there? And we look around and it feels like we don't see a lot of this playing out. Well, that's why in verse 24, Paul says it's in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, do we wait for it patiently and eagerly, even through sufferings? Actually, especially through sufferings. After all, Paul describes this whole process as a painful birth. Creation groans and we groan, but even in that we are guaranteed new life. But sometimes this groaning and the suffering causes us to want to cry out, God, like, where are you in all of this? Is there any purpose and meaning to all this very real pain around us? You know, talk about a promised land and an inheritance and a renewed creation. I mean, it feels like we're in a dry and barren wasteland. Well, in the gospel message, we discover this wonderful truth. He is not absent from all of this. Actually, he entered into the mess and into the suffering. And more than that, he died under its weight to guarantee our final redemption from it. You see, Jesus' death and resurrection was not a fleeting cameo appearance. Actually, God now is still present in creation, in our lives, by his spirit. And so as we groan and as creation groans, incredibly we see the Holy Spirit coming alongside us and groaning along with us. He he feels it too. So in verse 26 and 27 we see the spirit comes and helps us in our weak in our weakness. He strengthens us, he guides us, he leads us. He renews us. He he gives us a taste of what is to come and guarantees it. Ephesians 1 where you know the spirit is a down payment guaranteeing what is to come. And when we are completely perplexed and we just don't know what's going on and we don't know what to pray, the Spirit comes alongside us and even intercedes to God on our behalf in line with His purposes. We can't see the purposes of God all the time, but the Holy Spirit comes in and intercedes on our behalf in line with those great purposes that we can't see. That's wonderful truth, verse 26 and 27. And with that, we arrive back at verse 28, which was our starting point. This this first crashing great chord, this dramatic statement, the symphony at its peak, uh, all about our assurance in God and his love and purposes. So let's read verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
I would invite you and encourage you over this week just to spend some time in this verse and meditate through it and pray through it and let the Holy Spirit really speak to you through this verse and in all that it means. There's a, there's a minefield of truth in this one sentence you can dig into. But it's all about our assurance. This assurance actually that is an experienced truth based on past, present and future realities. You see, in the past, we lay hold of what God has done. You know, the ultimate expression of his love for us. He sent his son to die for us. And more than that, he was raised to life. We lay hold of that truth. And on the other hand, we we lay hold of future hope, don't we? This glorious inheritance that we've been talking about. Uh, We've been exploring new creation, resurrection life, a dwelling place with God. And in the present, we are reassured that His Spirit is at work in us. He is leading us and comforting us. He is ultimately giving us life and peace now on this journey. And all this whole picture of assurance, by the way, is not wishful thinking. No, no, it is, it is it's like we are standing in the midst of this vast orchestra, all playing beautifully in unison, this wonderful symphony of God's love and purposes. And we, and we look around at everything that's happening from past to present to future, and we declare as an observation, we are secure in his love. God is at work and for our good. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Bless you all. See ya.